Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Back that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm political scientist Michael Baranowski. My guest today is Michael Gerhardt, a professor of jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina Law School and a longtime student of presidential impeachment, a very relevant topic these days. He's also the author of a just-released book, The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen, which we'll be talking about today. Professor Gerhardt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with letting listeners know that you're just not some random guy or even some random law professor who wrote a book on impeachment. This is something you have been studying for a long time now, and not just studying, but actually playing a role in multiple impeachment proceedings. And so I thought before we got into the meat of our conversation, you could kind of talk a little bit about your background in this area. I'm happy to do that. Thanks. I So I grew up in the in the shadow of Watergate. Uh, this takes us back to the 1970s when Richard Nixon got in trouble for certain misconduct that led to his um, being the target of an impeachment inquiry in the House. And at that time, the thinking was that the process worked. So impeachment had worked to help put a spotlight on Nixon's misconduct and actually to help sort of encourage him to resign. And once I became sort of a legal scholar and began teaching constitutional law, my initial interest was to follow up on my experience as somebody was witnessing Watergate to try and study what happens in impeachment, what Congress's power is, how does the Constitution work outside the court, how does the Constitution work when the courts are not available to second-guess them. And impeachment is a great example of that. And so I began not just studying, but writing about impeachment. In the late 1980s, I became a consultant to the National a Commission on Judicial Discipline and Removal, and my focus is on the removal process in the Senate, which is part of the impeachment process. That led to a number of articles, including my first law review article as a law professor back in 1989, focusing on the constitutional limitations to impeachment. And I soon published a book in 1996 called The Federal Impeachment Process, and then later testified in not just the Clinton impeachment proceedings, but I spoke to the entire House of Representatives in 1998 about the history of impeachment. 
and I continued to research and write about impeachment, produced and authored a couple of other books. And I also was invited to testify, as I've mentioned, in a few of these proceedings. I testified in the Clinton hearings. I testified in the first Trump impeachment. And I also uh, testified in the first impeachment inquiry against President Biden. And last but not least, I have been given an opportunity to work as a special counsel on questions of impeachment, including serving as special counsel to the presiding officer, Senator Leahy, in Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. Wow. So if there's anyone who knows more about impeachment than you, I don't know who that would be. So, But with that out of the way, giving listeners a sense of your deep background in this area, I thought we could start with why impeachment is there in the Constitution in the first place. In other words, why did the framers think it was important to give specifically the House and the Senate the ability to remove, of course, not just the president, but also the vice president, as well as uh, civil officers of the United States? The framers, of course, had broken from England, and many of them were part of the writing of the Declaration of Independence, we see most famously Thomas Jefferson. And the reason why that's relevant is because the Declaration of Independence lists 27 articles of impeachment against the king. And the king was the only person in all of England who was not subject to impeachment by parliament. The framers did not like that system. They wanted to have a system in which the highest ranking officials, that would include the president, would be subject to impeachment. And so they provided that in the United States Constitution. They wanted to ensure that the president, along with other high-ranking officials, would be subject to impeachment and therefore accountable for their misconduct in office and ultimately not above the law. And in the book, you noted that in all of American history, the House has impeached 20 people, 14 of which are lower court judges, And then on the Senate side, they've convicted and removed only nine officials, and all of those nine were lower court judges. And I was wondering, you consider those numbers, 20 impeachments, nine convictions and removals, is that that low or about right, or how would we even judge? What's your thinking on that? That's a great question, and scholars don't really know the answer to that question. I think um, it it is a concern among legal scholars, and obviously many people in the country, that impeachment may be overused. And I frankly think that's a little bit of what's happening with the effort to go after President Biden through impeachment. But it's probably the case that impeachment has not been used as much as it could be, because there are other mechanisms for trying to hold public officials accountable. Um, And so impeachment is rarely used, and even generally, and it's rarely used against presidents. I I wonder if maybe it's not so much the use of impeachment, but the possibility of it that might actually be a check on, well, particularly egregious behavior from from presidents or or judges. What do you think about that idea? I think it's a terrific point, and I think it's right. Um, But I think impeachment's greatest effect maybe in cautioning presidents or other high-ranking officials from breaking the law or engaging in certain misconduct. So, for example, Richard Nixon, who was on the cusp of impeachment for various things, decided 
to comply with a Supreme Court order that he turn over tape conversations that would have implicated him further in the break-in, the burglary of the Democratic headquarters back in the 1970s. And so, and Nixon decided to comply. And I think he did that in part because he knew that was going to further um, or really inflame the movement to impeach him, provide another basis for impeachment. And he's probably not the only president who, uh, who thought that way. Even Donald Trump was said uh, not to uh, not to fire Robert Mueller because his counsel were telling him if he did that, that would likely lead to his impeachment. I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned grounds for impeachment, and I wanted to ask you specifically about that because according to the Constitution, of course, presidents can be impeached and removed for treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, now it seems to me that treason and bribery seem, well, relatively straightforward, but I've heard a lot of disagreement about what constitutes high crimes and misdemeanors. And so I was interested where in the book, you argue actually that the constitutional language on this point really isn't all that opaque. And I was hoping you could get into that. I think it's it's an important question. So you're right. I think treason, for example, is defined in the constitution. Bribery is defined not just in through federal statutory law, but there's a common sense understanding of bribery as abusing one's office for gain. Um, and so constitutional language that's usually considered more difficult, as you just pointed out, is this language, other high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, and I think what happens in practice is that presidents try and construe that language one way, while members of the Congress try and push a different understanding. And their differences sometimes confuse people or obscure the real or ultimate meaning of that phrase. I think most scholars, by far the scholars who've looked at this language, agree that other high crimes and misdemeanors basically means serious abuses of power by the president or actions by the president that seriously injure the republic. It's just that simple. The debate's going to be over what misconduct fits into that definition. I guess I wonder about that specific phrasing that the framers use, because it seems to me part of the uh, argument, at least on some in some level, is that people hear high, high crimes and they think, well, that must mean a criminal defense. And then they see misdemeanors and they say, well, a misdemeanor is also a sort of criminal defense. And so I guess I wonder if it would have been clearer, I guess, if the framers hadn't said something like serious abuse of power or public trust. And, and do you think it was a mistake to have that language or maybe it had a different meaning, a different connotation back then? It had a definite connotation back then. And so I think that the framers thought that's exactly what they did, what you just described. They relied on the language that England had used for centuries in characterizing the offenses for which people could be impeached. And uh, several of the colonies and early states had used similar, if not the exact same language, uh, to characterize the misconduct for which public officials could be thrown out of office. And, and therefore, if anybody cares about originalism or understanding what the framers thought about the Constitution, they can read what the framers said about that phrase and conclude that it refers to serious abuses of power. 
The challenge that arises is when people seize on terms like crimes or misdemeanors and go with what they think is the plain language, they don't do that consistently. Uh, and that raises the problem. We may talk about this later, for example, with respect to, to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, and uh, instead, what we've got to understand is the constitutional language needs to be read or understood in its context. And the context in which those terms appear is within the impeachment process as it was understood at the time of the framing. And I think that was pretty clear and well understood at the time. One thing I've heard time and time again about impeachment is that it's a political process. And in the book, you say that's that's kind of a misconception. And I wanted to get a sense of why you why you believe that is, in fact, a misconception. I, I think one of the challenges that that many people encounter when they try and understand impeachment is that there is there's a lot of confusion that is the result of a lot of debate in impeachment proceedings. And I think a lot of that debate in impeachment proceedings is not meant to educate the public as much as it's meant to either obscure its meaning or manipulate its meaning. Um, But instead, I think what is important to understand is that in practice, what Congress is really looking for or should be considering when it's considering impeachment is a serious abuse of power, breach of the public trust, the things you've just mentioned. That's what they should be looking at. And when we look at the actual process of impeachment, now, I I obviously read through the Constitution on this just to refresh my memory, but it seems to me there's almost no guidance that the Constitution gives to the House about exactly how the process of impeachment works. And the one thing that occurred to me, one thing you mentioned in the book is what about due process rights? Does the president have those sort of rights? And how how does the House decide on how to go about the process of impeaching the uh, the president? It's an important question. And I should say, as we look at that question, we should understand what we are also doing is essentially rebutting the idea that this is just a political process. Uh, saying it's just a political process means Congress can just do whatever it wants. No, Congress is constrained by that language, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And then there may be other parts of the Constitution that might constrain or inform what the House or Senate do in this process. And one example of that may be due process. Uh, I personally have thought due, due process doesn't necessarily apply within impeachment because due process in the Constitution applies to certain technical concepts, such as the idea that property is something that is defined by state or federal law as something to which somebody's entitled. But if we think about the presidency, people who occupy the presidency take it with the understanding that it is subject to impeachment. So therefore, there's not just a complete entitlement to that job. It's not, there's a process, yes, that one must go through if one gives up the presidency. That's called impeachment. But if we move to, uh, let's say, a more common language or common understanding, oh, well, every every time government acts, there must be some kind of due process. The answer to that is there's due process through, first, the division of power, the impeachment power between the House and the Senate. And then second, as you point out, the House must do something. 
What must it do? Well, it must likely investigate, put together a case. The Constitution says the House has the sole power to impeach, which is understood meaning to mean the House has the complete authority by itself to determine what is necessary, what is appropriate in its judgment to conduct an impeachment inquiry and conclude that impeachment is necessary. Now, you just mentioned impeachment inquiry. I wanted to ask you about that because there's nothing about that specifically in the Constitution, right? That's right. But what we've also, I think, what's also useful to just remember is that the Constitution has various parts, uh, various provisions that could come into play here. And so there's there's also a danger when people just look at one one word or one phrase without considering, well, how does this fit into all the Constitution? And for example, uh, Article 1, Section 5 gives each chamber of Congress the power to determine rules for their proceedings. Well, that, therefore, is a grant of authority to the House to develop rules for impeachment proceedings. And that is exactly what the House has done. So I want to move over to the Senate, because it seems to me that the Constitution gives more of a framework for the trial part in the Senate. And, and the first well, the first part of that, at least one of the first parts of that, says that senators at that impeachment trial shall be on oath or affirmation. Can you explain what that requirement means? Yes. Um, so once the House is impeached an official, the matter goes to the Senate. Uh, and if we're talking about a presidential impeachment, of course, that matter then goes to the Senate. And the Constitution spells out certain safeguards that have to be in place in order for an impeachment in order for an impeachment trial of a president to take place. And one of them is what you just quoted, that senators have to be on oath or affirmation, meaning that they must swear to a particular oath that requires them to be nonpartisan, in effect, to rise above partisan politics, to reach a kind of sober judgment on the question of presidential impeachment. See, that I guess that's what I wonder about, because I pulled up the specific, I think, where the, the current Senate rules about this, about the oath, and it says something about that they will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and the laws. And yet, when I look back at the process for Donald Trump, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, and this is a direct quote, I am not an impartial juror. And, and I'm pretty sure that if I recall, Mitch McConnell wasn't the only person who said that. And yet that seems to me to be a pretty clear violation of that oath, doesn't it? It does. And I think you're right to sort of point that out. And, uh, you know, we have a term in law called res ipsa loquitur. It translates as the thing speaks for itself. So I think McConnell's statement is a great example of that. You point out that, yes, senators take an oath or affirmation to do impartial justice. Then a senator comes out and says, I'm not going to be impartial. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that statement violates the oath that they should have taken and followed. But there's no penalty or anything like that for violating the oath. You're just I guess you can just point out, well, they violated the oath and, and that's it. Right. Well, senators are politically accountable. Um, but voters, in, you know, from a particular state, and obviously in Kentucky, will probably or likely, I mean, they have reelected Mitch McConnell several times, and so they're not going to punish him for that. But that's how the system is set up. 
so that the people making judgments about removal are senators and they are politically accountable to the voters of their respective states when they cast their votes in a presidential impeachment trial. Now, another requirement for the Constitution is that the chief justice preside over the trial. But that's as far as the Constitution goes. It doesn't say anything about any specific powers the chief justice has in that role. And I'm wondering if that's too little guidance or how that's kind of evolved. What sort of powers the chief justice is seen to have in this context? Yes, the Constitution does provide that the that in a presidential impeachment trial, the chief justice of the United States presides. And you're also right, of course, that the Constitution says nothing else about the details of what the president, what the chief justice should do when presiding. So what has happened is our understanding of the chief justice's role has been shaped through historical practice. We haven't had a lot of presidential impeachment trials, but the few that we've had demonstrate how uh, the chief justice's role has taken shape. So the first chief justice to preside over impeachment trial was Salmon Chase, uh, and that was the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson. Chase wanted to have a very aggressive role, and he tried to assert himself and insert himself in a very aggressive way in the proceedings. Ultimately, the Senate voted to adopt rules that basically allowed the Senate to override whatever the presiding officer said or did in an impeachment trial. So that put Chase in his place. And the next chief justices who presided, and that would be Chief Justice Rehnquist for Clinton uh, and Chief Justice Roberts for Trump, they understood from that history that their roles was limited. So Rehnquist and Roberts both took a much more passive role in presiding and tried to avoid making rulings that would prompt the Senate to try and overrule them. And, of course, at the end of the Senate trial comes the vote of whether to convict or not, and that requires two-thirds. And I wanted to ask you about that two-thirds. I know some people say, well, that's too high of a burden, but then there are other people who would argue that, well, no, it's entirely appropriate to have that large of a, that big of a supermajority, given the sort of anti-democratic nature of the process. And, and I wanted to get your uh, your view on two-thirds as being the requirement here. Well, I think you've set that up very well. I think that you've just said is exactly the dilemma that we've got when we look at this requirement of there being at least two-thirds of the senators present who vote for conviction in order for there to be a conviction. Um, in practice, it looks like that is too high a threshold. Every president who's faced an impeachment trial thus far has been acquitted. Um, and it's because, I should say in the modern era, that's Clinton and Trump twice, the president's fellow sort of partisans, the members of the president's party, have united largely in opposition to conviction. And that's been a large enough contingent to ensure that there's not going to be two-thirds of the senators voting in favor of conviction. That's that's what's happened. Now, we can look at that and ask, is that how it's supposed to work or not? Well, the fact is, that's how it's worked. And the idea was that senators would try to rise above partisan politics in making judgments in conviction, in impeachment trials. But 
the process has, in a sense, gotten embroiled too much in party politics um, to make it as effective a mechanism as perhaps it should have been. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Now, in the book, you actually take a look at all five of the presidential impeachments, Johnson, Nixon, Clinton, and the two Trump impeachments. And I wanted to talk a little bit about those individually, the kind of the one pre-modern impeachment, Andrew Johnson. I think that's the one that a lot of folks forget about. But maybe you could talk a little bit about why Johnson was impeached and how that process played out. Sure. Well, Andrew Johnson, as I think um, your listeners would know, is, of course, became president after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And nobody really wanted Andrew Johnson as president. At least nobody left in the Union wanted Andrew Johnson as president, yet they got him. Um, And he was extremely unpopular in Congress and among the American people at the time. And Johnson, however, thought it was important that he do what he thought was appropriate, not not kind of fill Lincoln's shoes, not do what Lincoln would have done. And Johnson, therefore, became an enemy of Reconstruction. And that was the set of policies put together by Congress in the aftermath of the Civil War. And Congress didn't like that. And ultimately, Congress was looking for a way to kind of get even, and impeachment came up as the likeliest option. So the House overwhelmingly impeached Johnson when he violated one of the laws that Congress had put together as part of Reconstruction. That law required that the president seek congressional approval if he was going to remove somebody who was appointed with congressional approval, particularly or specifically Senate consent. Um, So the matter goes to the Senate. And there, I think, senators ultimately had a tougher time reaching a judgment And they ultimately acquitted him by a single vote. Now, that acquittal has been tainted by historians' discovery that a number of senators were were actually bribed. And a number of senators may have been moved by Salmon Chase as chief justice not to convict Johnson for political reasons. And therefore, the Johnson acquittal is, is a complicated affair. And it's not been a good guide for us to figure out, okay, what exactly should the Senate be doing here? And then there's this huge period of time that passes before we get to the next impeachment. And we, we go all the way to, to, to Richard Nixon. And of course, that never got to a Senate trial because Nixon resigned first. And 
it, it seems to me like there's more or less a consensus that has gone to a trial. He would have been convicted. And I want to get a sense first off is, is that your take on it? And if so, is this maybe an example of a time where the process worked, if not as intended, had kind of the desired out effect? It's my view that this is perhaps the best example of the process working as it should. It may be the only example we've got. Um, but Nixon was investigated by the House. He was investigated by the Senate. He was investigated by a special prosecutor, all of whom found credible evidence that Nixon had abused his powers as president. Uh, and that's what led the House Judiciary Committee to approve three impeachment articles against Nixon. And shortly afterwards, Nixon resigned. But Nixon resigned also in part because the Supreme Court had directed him to turn over tape conversations that essentially were like smoking guns of Nixon's misconduct. And so Nixon found himself really at odds with every other branch of government. And that may be a good example of how the system worked. But Nixon's resignation, though I think it was thought at the time to be the culmination of the process working right has not really been an example other presidents have followed. And as we know, Bill Clinton never was going to resign, and he didn't. Donald Trump was never going to resign, and he didn't. So as an example, the Nixon case turns out to be perhaps less of a lesson for um, of how the process should work, but more of a lesson to presidents that if you stick it out, you might actually not get removed. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I know there's one, this one school of thought, I guess, that says that Nixon is different uh, because how egregious what he did was that he actually committed crimes and that there were these sort of smoking guns. And that really wasn't the case in these other four instances. Do, do you think there's anything to that? I don't think there's as much to that as the people that sort of push that idea would want. Um, and that's because. We've, we've got pretty clear evidence with the next in the next couple of impeachment trials that followed Nixon. With Bill Clinton, there was clear evidence that he had done certain things, for example, lied under oath. The question with Clinton, therefore, was not what he did as much as it was, was it bad enough to serve as a basis for impeachment? If we fast forward the, then, then to Donald Trump in his first trial, that was the House that impeached Trump based on voluminous evidence gathered by the House Intelligence Committee that was all credible, that demonstrated that Trump had abused his powers in, in interacting with the president of Ukraine um, to try and get that president to issue really just a, 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 a Trump sort of uh, inspired sort of revelation that there needed to be an investigation of Joe Biden for criminal misconduct. And the House made the determination that Trump's actions in that, in that episode justified impeachment. And it got to the Senate, where in the trial, he was acquitted. But I should point out that a lot of senators, including Republican senators, really criticized Trump for his misconduct. And we, if we get to the second Trump trial, seven Republicans broke with their party to vote to convict Trump based on evidence. So all they're really on videotape, and it's all now brought together by the January 6th committee. Trump clearly had a role in inciting people 
to go after Congress in in a violent way. And Trump, I think, so again, there's the evidence of it. And there may be political reasons why people voted to acquit him, but I'd just point out that most Republicans after the second trial gave speeches and statements that criticized Trump pretty harshly. And it seems like that's sort of a fallback position for partisans who don't want to remove a president or even to impeach a president to say, well, you know, this person did some things that were that were questionable, that maybe even were wrong, but but they don't rise to that level. And not only that, but that the argument is, well, let's let the voters decide. We have an election coming up or in one case there there was an election. And and, and so kind of let let the voters decide as opposed to have us inject ourselves in this process. What's your oh, what's your view of, of that sort of defense, I guess I'll call it, of not voting to impeach or not voting to convict, even if you think that wrong actions were, were done by, by the president? Well, I think that's proven to be a relatively effective defense for presidents in impeachment trials. They're saying, as you point out, oh, let's let the voters decide. But impeachment was put into the Constitution as a mechanism that operated or were supposed to operate without regard to what the public thought. Uh, impeachment was thought to be sort of meant as a protective, a protective mechanism against presidential abuse of power that may have been directed, for example, at undermining the integrity of the election. That's what impeachment's for. And therefore, just relying on voters later is not what I think the framers originally intended in the design of the Constitution they, they have given us. Um, and instead, I think what's happened is senators, um, because they, they're now subject to elections by all the people in their respective states, they're going to be much more attuned to what the public and their respective states think than I think the original framers had thought would be the case. Now, in, in, in Donald Trump's instance, right, the, for the second impeachment, that, that was after the election took place. And I think some people wonder, well, why would you bother? What would be the point of impeaching a president who has lost an election, who is on his way out? Isn't that sort of abuse of the process? And I wanted to get your view of that. Well, I think it was a political judgment by the Senate whether or not to proceed. That's not necessarily an abuse of power, just as it's sometimes the political judgment of senators to vote as they did with Andrew Johnson, later with Clinton, later with Trump, to vote to acquit because they just thought politically, oh, that may be a better position for whatever reason for them to take. And therefore, I don't think it's necessarily abusive for the Senate to have proceeded with a trial against Trump in the closing days of his presidency, because I think the House thought at the time, and a number of senators thought at the time, this is the kind of thing we can't give a pass to the president for. Um, it's just too serious. And that's why they proceeded. And as part of it, Mike, the argument was that, well, if if you could get a conviction, then you can prevent uh the individual, in this case, Donald Trump, from running again, right? Which which would be another right. maybe reason to right. do it. So there was, a, yes, so there was that other important reason you pointed out uh, that if Trump got convicted in the second trial, then the Senate might be able to impose disqualification on him. So impeachment has two sanctions. 
One is removal. The other is disqualification. Disqualification means essentially to make somebody ineligible to serve again in federal office, including the presidency. And so that was another motivation for the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Now, I wonder, I'm thinking back to what you mentioned with that that first impeachment of Johnson, that he violated some or was alleged to violate some laws that Congress passed. And it seems to me there are other avenues of correcting that sort of abuse of power. Right? I mean, we've seen in pretty much every presidential administration, the president does something that someone alleges is a violation of the law. Well, you can use the court system to do that. And so I'm wondering if having the courts between the courts and the election process, having letting the voters weigh in, if that's enough of a check on potential abuses of power from the president, or if impeachment is adds something important to that. I think it depends on the context. It depends on sort of the circumstances. But I think there are two things to keep in mind about impeachment. One is that impeachment is meant as a last resort. So um, these other processes may work like they did with Richard Nixon, but impeachment still might be necessary as the ultimate protection of the republic from the president's corruption. And the second thing to understand about impeachment which I think is really important, is that it's designed to get at misconduct that our legal system has no other remedy for. So when a president abuses power, that isn't necessarily a statutory violation. And it's not necessarily uh, the kind of thing you could fix through an election. And therefore, that's why impeachment becomes necessary, because it gets at that abuse of power for which there's no other appropriate remedy. And, you know, obviously we've seen a lot of impeachments uh, lately, right? And I know you're familiar with the argument that, well, the more impeachments we see, the more it's used, the less seriously anyone's going to take it, right? I mean, you have the two impeachments of Donald Trump, you have the uh, impeachment or inquiry with Joe Biden. And so it almost seems like impeachment is just sort of a normalized thing. Well, there's a new president. If we have the votes in the House, we'll go ahead and impeach that person to try to throw some mud on them and that it doesn't really have any meaning anymore. And I wanted to get your your view of that. I think that's a really great question. And I think that's why we have an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. It's meant to convey, or I should say, it's meant to gut impeachment of any seriousness. You know, Donald Trump has asked for the impeachment of Biden as retaliation against his two impeachments. Well, that's not how the system is supposed to work. But if it appears that way, then Republicans may be successful in getting Americans to think, oh, well, impeachment's really just a partisan weapon. It's not really meant to get at anything serious. And that would be really tragic and dangerous. And along those lines, is there can you see any way to make this process less partisan or at least make it appear less partisan? Or do you think this is just kind of inherently part of the process because it's taking place in an environment, a political environment that's just so very polarized and partisan? Well, you ask a question that really has kept me up late at night. (laughs) That's, (laughs) That's a tough one. I I think that, to begin with, I think we have to acknowledge what you just said is the case, that we live in a polarized country. Uh, and that polarization has tainted lots of things 
and it's now tainted impeachment. Um, and the fact is the framers weren't perfect. Um, their government, although it's it's a good design, it's a design we constitutional scholars obviously respect and, and care about, but it's not a perfect system. And so what we've discovered after the ratification of the Constitution, the rise of political parties has damaged a number of constitutional mechanisms, and impeachment is one of them. And I think back to the the Nixon impeachment, and of course, that was an era that was a lot less partisan, a lot less polarized than what we have today. And I wonder if even with all that evidence, if we kind of transplanted what Nixon did into the 21st, the 21st century, if he just would have brazened it out and would have been okay, essentially. That's possible. I mean, the thing, that, of course, that we should keep in mind is that when there's a presidential impeachment trial, the stakes couldn't be higher. Removing a president not through an election, is a really, really big deal. And the framers created that threshold of two-thirds of senators' approval for conviction as a way to ensure that you could never get removal unless there was a bipartisan consensus. And what we're discovering is, as a practical matter, achieving that bipartisan consensus is extremely difficult in an era in which political parties exert as much influence as they, as they do. So if if we can just go into fantasy land for a minute here, if knowing what we know now, if you could just sort of create your ideal impeachment and removal process, how would it differ uh, in general, do you think, from what we have now? Well, I've also stayed up late and I'm worrying <laughs> about that and thinking about that question. And my answer is, I guess, my answer may or may not be persuasive to other people. I look at what states have done. And sometimes what states have done is they've not relied on the legislative process, but they have special commissions or special committees. And I think that may be ultimately the better option. That is to consider, um, you know, if we were reinventing the wor world, to have adopted a special mechanism that didn't rely on politicians um, for the ultimate judgment about whether or not the president committed serious enough misconduct to justify his removal and disqualification. And so, you know, my home state, for example, of Alabama, relied on a special committee twice to consider the removal of Chief Justice Roy Moore, and twice that committee did it. And that committee didn't get a lot of partisan pushback because I think the committee was responsible. And I could be an example at the federal level, but whether or not we could ever get to that point is anybody's guess. And of course, some people might say, well, the framers could have just as easily, instead of giving this power to politicians, elected officials, well, in the House and indirectly at that time in the Senate, they could have just given that power to the Supreme Court, right, which is a body that at least uh, ostensibly is less partisan, certainly not directly accountable to the voters. Would that have been, do you think, a preferable setup, given what we know now? Well, the framers thought about that and rejected it. They rejected it for a few different reasons. One was that a number of those justices could have been appointed by the president who's facing the impeachment trial, and therefore those justices might not be impartial. And the second reason the framers rejected 
the Supreme Court as the body to discipline presidents is because they thought that that judgment, um, the judgment to discipline a president, was not the kind of judgment that justices make. Justices make, according to the framers, judgments about sort of legal technicalities, but they don't make judgments about sort of the fate of the republic. And that's what really an impeachment trial is about. And so the framers, again, vested it, that authority in politically accountable figures, uh, House members and senators. And they did that in part because they thought the political accountability of the members would be a check against their abusing their powers. Now, that may not have worked out as well as the framers might have hoped or considered. And one thing we, we've got to cons- really think about hard is whether or not senators are ever capable of rising above party politics. They actually do sometimes. And for example, the House recently expelled George Santos and over 100 Republicans voted for that. That was against their party interest. And I think that was a vote based on principle. And what we've got to hope for is that the House can do that, not just in the Santos case, but if it comes to a president, regardless of the president's party, and the senators have to think the same thing. But I think what's going on with Joe, Joe Biden, at least in my judgment, is not something principled, but it's just an effort to appease Donald Trump and, and get back at the Democrats for having impeached Trump. Now, now, some people might say, well, if you're looking for an alternate mechanism that might actually work in may be possible in some instances, you can also look to the states and say, well, some states do have recall elections for officials, and maybe that's potential alternative. Now, obviously, that's a, another fantasy land thing, because that, that's not something that we can just go ahead and do. But what do you think about that as an alternative that kind of lets the voters decide? Well, I, I, it's not a bad idea, but there are two complications. The first is that the voters themselves may be partisan. Um, the second is, what if the official has attacked the integrity of the electoral system and rigged it, so to speak? Then we can't rely on that electoral system. And that example I just gave you is one that came from the framers. That was The framers understood that a president had the power or perhaps the means or the clout to really rig elections or undermine them. So we can't rely on elections to, to safeguard us, the people, and maybe more importantly, the Constitution from a president who's determined to wreck it. Yeah, that's a good point. So so let's go back from fantasy world into the real world here to, to close out. And, and I'm wondering if you think that there are any changes that could be made to the process that are politically feasible, even if they're kind of maybe not likely, but at least if you can see them happening in some way, that would maybe improve it in some way, make it less partisan, seem more legitimate, anything along those lines? Well, there there are a few things, I mean, none of which is perfect, um, but maybe they could help. I mean, one might be a requirement that everyone who votes on impeachment has to come up with a public statement to explain the reasons. And that that could provide some kind of transparency, but also, of course, could provide some kind of manipulation. Um, a second possibility is to require within the House and the Senate, if we're talking about an impeachment process, that 
some kind of independent or impartial experts be brought in to conduct the investigations. So those investigations are not going to be tainted by partisanship. Um, that could be helpful for ensuring the integrity of the fact-finding process, and that could make a difference too. And, and those are all things that could be done through the House and or the Senate just changing their rules, and that wouldn't require any kind of constitutional changes or anything like that. All right. Well, Michael Gerhardt, it's been a pleasure talking with you about impeachment. Again, the book is The Law of Presidential Impeachment. I, I enjoyed it. I found it highly informative, really interesting, and uh, give it my strongest recommendation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, you're very kind. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there at the $10 a month level or more. You get to actually be part of the episodes Jay and I do, if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.